Before the episode, I want to share a quick word from this episode's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly Risk Strategies. Our first sponsor, Live Oak Bank, is a seasoned SMB lender providing SBA and conventional financing for search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire lower middle market companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Anderson directly to start a conversation or go to liveoakbank.com think. Our second, Hood & Strong, is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. And our third sponsor, Oberly Risk Strategies, is the leading specialty insurance brokerage catering to search funds and the broader ETA community, providing complimentary due diligence assessments of the target company's commercial insurance and employee benefits programs. Over the past decade, August Felker and his team have engaged with hundreds of searchers to provide due diligence and ultimately place the most competitive insurance program at closing. Given August's experience as a searcher himself, he and his team understand all that goes into buying a business and pride themselves on making the insurance portion of closing seamless and hassle-free. If you are under LOI, please reach out to August to learn more about how Oberly can help with insurance due diligence at oberly-risk.com or reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at A.E. Bridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small business and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. My guests in this episode are Paul Janchich and Daniel Eisen, who have founded Arcadia Group, a permanent capital holding company that has raised $320 million to invest over ultra-long periods of time in typically independent, founder-controlled software companies with strong growth and duration potential. Prior to founding Arcadia, Daniel and Paul had careers in private equity, growth equity, and buyout, most recently with Constellation Software, where they both were hired by and worked for Mark Leonard in various senior executive roles in the company. We talk extensively about what they learned in their backgrounds, how Arcadia differs from PE, growth equity, and Constellation in their approach, and what it means to invest in and grow a company over a very long time horizon. It seems like more and more of these permanent capital vehicles are being created. If you know any great ones with a unique approach, please reach out and let me know. This is a fascinating area that I want to learn more about. Good to see you both. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Looking forward to chatting all about 
software investments, working at Constellation, and why long-term horizons are generally good for business. So I'd, I'd love to just start with your backgrounds and, and work from there. Paul, do you want to start? Sure. Start all the way back in. I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. My immediate family is not a business. My father's a musician. My mom was a nurse and had a great upbringing there and studied at Princeton for undergrad and started to go there as a physics guy. That was my goal is to become a physics major and quickly realized that, you know, while I was pretty good at high school, is kind of this next level up of people that have tenure track potential in the physics department. I wasn't one of them. I switched to religion and philosophy, which is the other end of the spectrum. During college, I had an internship on Wall Street, which a lot of kids from Princeton get because of the strong brand of the school and the relationship with the firms. And it was around that time that I started learning about investing actually through an uncle of mine who had sold a business, I think in his mid to late thirties and became my professional investor of his own money, learned about Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett and worked at, as a result of that burgeoning interest and that internship was lucky enough to get a job after a bit at Citigroup in New York. At City, I worked on the markets division and the analyst rotational program and landed on a credit research desk covering high yield investment grade bonds and CDS and stuff like that in the energy sector. Spent two and some change years there. And during my time at City, helping sell some of these bonds basically and try to help the DCM guys price them relative to what was going on in the book that we traded. I got to know some private equity firm that was taking a company public at the same time doing a debt offering. And when he explained to me his business, I thought it sounded like it should be illegal in that it was a cheat code versus public markets debt or equity investing. He knew all the financials. He knew the PV10 buildup, which is this technical term for oil field reserves. And he knew the monthly financials daily if he wanted to. He could tell management what to do. He could talk with management about anything that was going on. And compared to public market investing, where all we had were Q's and K's and maybe a CFO call once or twice a year, I just thought, wow, that seems really easy and interesting. I was lucky enough to find my way to a growth equity firm that took a chance on me and brought me in as an associate. And they're focused on primarily enterprise B2B software, doing series A, series B growth investments in one to 5 million ARR businesses growing kind of 50 to at the very low end to more like 100, 200% per year. And as a firm called Arsenal Growth, good group of guys. And it was there that I learned software and software investing and private market investing. And it was also there that I stumbled across Constellation Software through my brother-in-law, who's a um, fund manager at a big mutual fund. And then I'll stop before I get to Constellation because I'm sure we'll talk about that. But it was a real eye-opener to have gone from knowing nothing about finance or accounting or investing and never taken a finance business or accounting class in my life or economics for that matter, to working at Wall Street, to being at this growth equity firm and then seeing what Mark Leonard and Constellation team had done in software without debt in an incredibly capital efficient manner and had created this shareholder return, which was better than basically 99% of public companies ever. And I thought 
there's something here that I don't understand. And it was obvious that was the kind of the best place to learn as my next step. And that's where Daniel and I met, which we can talk about in a bit. That's me in a nutshell. My background, I grew up in a suburb of Toronto called Thornhill, went to school at a small, ironically, accounting focused school outside of Toronto called Wilfrid Laurier. And I'd started down the path there. I think I was going to become a CPA, which is, uh, I'm sure what my parents were keen on, uh, on seeing happen and becoming a partner at one of the, the big four firms. I did, I think, two years of the more accounting focused stream and I realized this was not all that exciting and then ended up in some capital markets classes. And that led to my last semester there doing a work term at one of the Canadian banks in the equity research group. And that's where I ended up joining after I graduated a couple of years of equity research analyst work in the retail sector which was interesting, but realized I didn't want to become an analyst, was sitting next to a fellow who had a friend at a private equity firm in Toronto. Didn't really know a whole lot about private equity, but he was describing it as a cool place to go work and ended up getting a job there. The firm was called Torquest Partners, which ironically is the spot that Paul was working at just before we started Arcadia. They're a real top-notch mid-market private equity firm in Toronto. Two years stint there in the associate seat coinciding with the GFC. So didn't do a whole lot of new capital deployment there. And a lot of the time was spent in the portfolio that led to me leaving Torquest first on a secondment and eventually on a full-time basis to join one of the portfolio companies that was going through some tough times and sort of underperformed right from the get-go and was a senior operating executive there for four years, trying to turn the business around. It was a chain of commercial weight loss centers that was franchised and there's lots of interesting stories that I can share from that time at some point, but it was a real eye-opening experience for me in terms of being a young person, spending a bunch of time in the sort of ivory tower investing, working on Bay Street in Toronto, and then going to the trenches of a business and seeing what actually happens day to day and how value gets created. It's a great experience. We were not successful in turning around the business. I think most of us there probably realized that that was going to be the outcome. A couple of years before we all started to depart for other roles. And as I was winding down there, a friend of mine and now a friend of ours was in the Mark Leonard seat at Constellation. It was time for him to transition it to a new role in the business. And he knows looking for something new to do. He said, Hey, you should come meet Mark. And here's what my experience has been. It's really neat and going to be a great organization for you to build a career in. So. I went to go meet with Mark, not knowing also a lot about Constellation or really about software investing, a pretty different perspective than Paula had going in. And you sit down with Mark and you spend five minutes with them and you realize it's just one of these world-class people that any opportunity you have to work with and learn from a person that caliber, you've got to take. And so I joined Constellation uh, to work with Mark for a year and then wound my way through the organization over the subsequent, it goes there for seven years, which brought me to... Uh, Arcadia. Paul and I overlapped. Paul was a couple of iterations after me, two iterations. And so your final responsibility working with Mark when it's time to leave the nest and go get a real job in the company is to find your successor. I hired the fellow that worked for me and then he ended up hiring Paul. It was a pretty small group of folks in that world. So it didn't take long for us to connect and realize we had a lot of... And you were one of my interviews, I'm pretty sure. I know Benji was for sure. That's right. Yeah, I would have participated in that vetting process. And the funny part about that progression in that role as we all look back there is the 
successor was sort of incremental improvement over the person that hired them. And so uh, by the time I got the call, all of us who came before were looking at Paul's performance and abilities saying, gosh, I'm glad I got hired before him because I'm not sure we would have hit Paul's screen to hire afterwards. We all did our job in providing some incremental value to the organization by at least hiring a good person after us. That's you just making up for your insult on my intro. So thank you. <laughs> One thing you mentioned just there was part of the culture at Constellation was to hire your successor if you were going to move up in the company. Can you talk about a few other cultural elements within the company that you found were particularly unique? For sure, focus on learning through data as opposed to learning through anecdote and learning through intuition or mainstream wisdom was huge. You can have an opinion, but the opinion better be supported by data and data that everyone can see and data that is of high quality. So some guy's story is not data that's of high quality, but measurement of business performance is same thing. If you think about it, studying a, I don't know, a potential CEO. And if you have data on his track record, then you can have an opinion on whether or not they're a good CEO. But if some people tell you that this is a great gal or guy, and they're really fun to be with, those are the sorts of beliefs that were eschewed. And that's a big change from a lot of places, even investment firms who would otherwise characterize themselves as data-driven. I think we can both speak to that having been in other investment operations. And so Constellation was just excellent at making sure that opinions were supported by verifiable data and of sufficient quality. Yeah. So one of the cultural values that both Paul and I benefited from was a willingness to put young, unproven, but high potential folks into roles where there was a lot of responsibility in this sink or swim construct. And we both had the opportunity to do that as we progressed through the different parts of the organization. And I saw that happen quite a bit in the group that I was working with, folks that followed me or joined after I did that were also younger in their career and people who had the ambition to put up their hand and say, gosh, I'd like to go do this, or I think I can add some value here. Being able to have the backing of the key decision makers to go do that and take a shot of it. In some cases being forced to do it, maybe a little bit ahead of when folks were willing to do, but people saw that the ability was there. It was really prevalent. I think gave a lot of folks an opportunity to build a career without some of the direct experience that might have required in, in other situations. So part of me wonders why more companies don't just blatantly copy the Constellation model. There's, of course, likely structural elements of Constellation that are really hard to replicate. But from your experience there, what might be some of the hardest elements of Constellation to replicate if you were to try to recreate that model? Discipline comes to mind. People generally in large groups are not super disciplined and discipline seems to evaporate once scale comes into the picture. That with private equity firms, except like Union Square Ventures, which just raised 300 million every time, it could raise probably 30 billion. I can name another firm that doesn't try to double the fund size every time they grow up. Every time they complete one, it's, it's very rare. And the, the constellation version of that would be discipline around investing. And so bigger private equity firms, they raise a bigger fund. They want to do bigger checks because if you just hire more people, the GPs don't make as big of fees. 
And what do you know, the returns come down over time. Uh, there are obviously exceptions to that. Some of the really great firms, but typically discipline evaporates and you see that in public markets firms. I think you see that private market firms and for sure you can see that in businesses constellation being both a business and an investment firm. So I think that's incredibly difficult to replicate. And the reason they have historically been pretty good at that is due to the culture of data-driven decisions, which I mentioned earlier, and also some of the very powerful figureheads of the business, ensuring that that culture was pushed through and celebrated often. Yeah. I also think in the contract of a public company, the willingness to have humility or not being caught up in the noise of being a promoter that is evident with all of the key leaders there, Mark being the best example of that, if you listen to any of his earnings calls, that's an incredibly rare quality to have. And that sort of approach to business from a outward facing perspective is reflected in the business as well, keeping this level of humility and focus on executing and not promoting that there's not many folks who have had that sort of success that Mark and his team there have had and have done that with the lack of public acknowledgement, public stature. I think it's a key part of what may, has made the business successful. It's just a rare attribute to have to find a bunch of folks that think like that and conduct themselves like that. I think frugality is correlated with that. Everyone rides economy. We're nobody's staying at the Ritz. People are eating at the high-end steakhouses on trips. And those little signals really get talked about and will permeate a business. And we're very cognizant of that in building Arcadia. What kind of office do we have? And what's the coffee machine in the cafe? And what are our policies around travel? These little things definitely add up and you get huge leverage out of them. So then taking it to Arcadia, what two to three things from Constellation did you want to bring over into your own firm? Like data-driven decision-making and frugality is probably a, a big one, but we'd be curious about other elements that you wanted to incorporate. One difference from Constellation is we're very much focused or so on organic growing businesses. We kind of, we think about picking up where Constellation leaves off. And so 10% kind of minimum all the way to 50, 60%. That takes a much more of a focus on what can go right than what can go wrong. And I think it skews us a little bit more towards probably a bit more modern businesses and maybe a different set of playbooks and best practices that, you know, we can hopefully bring from our days in growth equity and bring those to bear in the otherwise high discipline construct that we know how to operate. That's one difference. Another is that we're very happy to have folks rural equity alongside of us. We don't have this burning need to own 100% of businesses. We think that particularly for younger founders and the, the more quickly growing kind of higher quality businesses, it's almost a bad sign if somebody wants to completely sell to you. It means that you've probably paid too high of a price and you like seeing somebody else re-up and put their money where their mouth is on a valuation. And we like equity ownership for our employees, our teammates, the people who are running our businesses. That also goes for the folks who are selling businesses to us. Um, so we would love a large number of our companies, particularly those ultra high quality, quickly growing businesses to have long-term equity partners alongside of us. I guess Daniel mentioned a little bit also that we're far less focused on our profitability. We're much more interested in what can this become over 15 years. We also 
don't necessarily fully believe that to grow, you need to burn capital. This is a bad thought that VC and growth equity have taken far too down the logical path. So we do believe in capital efficient growth, but that being said, we're happy to take bigger swings, we think, and let businesses even burn capital for a period of years if they're achieving those really high growth rates. And that's really important to us because if we just pull the profitability lever every time, which is appropriate to lower growth business. What you have happen is this flywheel of what's normal for the firm. What are people comfortable with? What do people know they can propose without getting critical feedback in front of their peers and an investment committee that leads to the next generation of portfolio managers or CEOs. And then all they know how to do is to profitability. And then what are they comfortable with looking at businesses to invest in that are low growth? And around you go. And we, we don't want that wheel to start spinning too quickly. And in, if anything, we'd want it to spin the other way. We're also quite open to using leverage in the right situations. Oscillation is famous for basically using none over its history, other than a couple of exceptions. And we've learned from our investor base about how that can be applied judiciously to augment returns in the right situation. And it's something that we're quite open to where it makes sense. Certainly not all the way to the traditional prime equity model of extreme leverage, but where it makes sense and we can use it judiciously and it doesn't overly fragilize the business, we're going to take advantage of it. We're investors and we want to get returns and you can augment returns with debt capital. It's going to make sense for us to, to do that. And that can make a difference when it comes to buying high quality businesses at the prices that they're trading at, if you can use leverage to get you over the, the line or make sure that you're competitive with folks who have a shorter term horizon and they're going to be extreme with leverage to optimize a, a price, we will definitely do that. Yeah. Debt's a, debt's a tactic, not a strategy. And we see some other kind of aggregator businesses in the software space, not constellation, but smaller shops really almost embrace leverage as a strategy. And as a result, if that's your core strategy, you got to get really profitable businesses and pay a low price. And then now all of a sudden we're in that flywheel I talked about. Okay, you're buying, you know, 0% organic growth businesses. Your whole portfolio is zero or 1% organic growth. What type of habits and patterns are you building in that organization? The IRR may be great and your capital efficiency may be through the roof, but Typically low growth businesses that are highly levered don't seem to last. That's not a formula historically that has worked out well for protecting equity ownership. And, you know, we want to use leverage like Daniel said, but also have it be an adjunct as opposed to the core centerpiece of the strategy. Can you share a rough high level overview of how Arcadia is set up and then perhaps the general profile of your investors? No need to identify any of them by name, but just what are the types of folks who have signed on to Arcadia? Sure. I'll start with the structure piece. You can do the investors, Daniel. So we're a whole co permanent capital, a 320 million Canadian, as is about 260 US. It does obviously depend on the uh, the day and the, the FX rate. And we have, we call that capital down as we use it. And then the idea is that's the only capital we'll ever need. That's certainly the only capital we want to raise. And then this is a classic compounding vehicle where we will leverage the free cash flow from businesses such that 
they make free cash flow. And we're happy, by the way, with businesses that are not making much profit, which is a key difference from Constellation, some other or the software aggregators out there, and uh, redeploy that cash into new businesses over time and so on and so forth for hopefully really long periods. And our investors are aligned and structurally obligated, so to speak, to be alongside with us for a long time, which we had no pushback against from the investors that we chose. Yeah. We emphasize when we talk to folks in the market that we have shareholders, not LPs. And we often get the question of who's your LP and what does your LP base look like? And always to correct that we have no LPs. These are shareholders. And that's a really important distinction for folks that understand how the fund world works and that uh, shareholder is someone that's interested in value creation for long periods of time. At least that's the ideal shareholder. And LPs tend to be a little more focused on fund lives and return of capital and finite periods of time, which is not the model that we put together. So in terms of the profile of investors, all folks that are investing their own capital. So there's no agent principle dynamic here. These are all principles. Most all the folks are individuals or their collections of individuals investing their family's capital, all of whom ultra accomplished in their own right. A bunch of folks in the investment world, some people come from the operating world. And it's a small number. This is a group of folks that we could get around and go up to Algonquin Park and on a camping trip and everyone would fit around the a campfire. These are folks like Mitch Rails, who founded Danaher a number of years ago and the various Danaher spinoffs. Folks who have come out of the SPO Partners investment firm, incredibly accomplished a couple of the former partners there. A bunch of others of that ilk who are pretty private with their investing activities these days, but are similarly accomplished from those folks. So people who think about investing from a multi-decade compounding perspective, that's the, the key theme there. Most of them have, just to add, they have these long visions for their money, 100-year visions. You can Google and see what the Rails family's doing with Glenstone and their passion is pretty easy to see. And that's the same with all of our investors. Nobody's in this to get a big boat in seven years or something else silly like that. There's a purpose and a mission behind all the capital. And it's no surprise to us now, looking back, that folks with these long missions and a bigger vision for what they're doing with their money correlate with long-termism. And surprisingly, a lot of institutions who ought to have the longest horizon out of anyone, an endowment for a university, hopefully you're thinking in 500-year slugs, but those were the entities that were most focused on what was the quarterly NAV approach going to be. And that just screamed short-termism as opposed to, we didn't get a single question like that from any of the folks that we ended up going with. Their focus on what happens in 15 years when you need to transform the business into something it's not today, not what is my distribution call right in year 4.65 if the markets are down. Sounds like a nice group of investors. You mentioned earlier that the types of companies that you're after don't necessarily need to have free cash flow. I'd love to just expand on just the parameters that you're looking for within these companies and perhaps how they differed from your time at Constellation. Is there an opportunity that you see in a different degree or different type of company or a company in a different state that you wouldn't have looked at at Constellation? Our criteria are, I'll do the easy part, Daniel, you do the second harder part. The easy part is we're looking at three to 20 million of ARR with growth of at least 10%, up to 50, 60, sometimes 70%. The businesses can be cash flowing or not. 
but capital efficiency for us is a big thing. So that correlates with mostly bootstrapped or lightly backed companies, sometimes corporate owned assets, but businesses that have been able to do a lot with a little, that typically tells us that they are constrained and therefore they're making tough product decisions. So only building what customers really want as opposed to visionary product development, growing where they have confidence that they can grow and they have high product market fit as opposed to push we're open, sell a bunch of stuff to hit a quarterly bookings number for your VC or your growth equity investor. And also these capital efficient businesses that we focus on typically have a higher degree of pride in their culture and higher employee satisfaction and customer satisfaction. So the capital efficiency thing is the simple way to identify a lot more important elements of businesses. That's where we're focused. North America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, they're all places where we're really comfortable. We've done a lot of investing personally in the past. The harder question around this stuff we're looking at with Arcadia versus Constellation, the best way to answer that question as a starting point is we think of the competitive set of other folks in the investing world that we talk in the same sort of businesses that we are, people who are coming from the growth equity world or the more aggressive mid-market private equity software investors that aligns with businesses that have this 10 plus percent top line growth and potentially a lower margin profile, at least at the start, than some of the folks, Constellation and great acquirers of vertical software businesses, but maybe a little bit lower on the growth curve. And I think where that really manifests for us is we think about investing for the long term and having support of a small group of shareholders who are interested in multi-decade outcomes is we are less tied to IRR than other folks may be. IRR matters. It's a metric that's relevant to how folks are measuring investment outcomes, but we're thinking as much about MOIC as we are IRR and in some cases a little bit more. And the challenge with the IRR game, if you've got really strict IRR hurdles, if you don't have strong cash flows in the early years, especially if you're not getting into an exit in three to four years, that leads you to emphasize profitability versus growth and focusing on strong near-term profitability. This is the classic product you've got with software businesses is do you want to invest in growth or do you want to slow growth and extract more profits? If you really think about investing from a strictly IRR game, then you tend to fall a bit more towards the slower growth, but higher profit. And if you're less focused on IRR and there's an opportunity to grow a business organically at significant rates over long periods of time, then you're going to underwrite that investment and not be so focused on whether your IRR is 26 versus 23% or 22%. You're going to get that great MOSC outcome in, in 10 or 15 years. Yeah. We've talked a lot about indefinite time horizons so far. I'd be curious some of the research or learnings that you've seen from studying companies that have more of a longer term time horizon are less transactional and not rushing to a quick finish line. Can you talk a little bit about some of that philosophy and how it's influenced you? Some attributes of businesses that seem to do really well over time include some of the, the elements we discussed earlier, like discipline. It's just the classic Buffett circle of competence stuff. You've got to prize the core. The core is beautiful. And usually, particularly in software context, the markets are much larger and longer tailed than folks think. 
And so not getting distracted by the new flashy widget or seam in the market that gives investors incredible FOMO pain is an attribute that leads to long-term success and duration. That duration of growth is what we're more excited about than the absolute extent of growth for sure. So we think about that question in the context of a traditional investment firm model and transaction costs are real and whether that comes from what you're paying your advisors to sell a business or, or taxes. And if you think about compounding, be able to do it pre-tax and pre-transaction fee is the best way to extraordinary outcomes. And in the investment world, it's not a common approach because most folks who raise capital want to see a big payday in three or five years with a carried interest check and that leads to transaction fees. And you find these great businesses that you're forced to sell because of that, the returns that you would have generated over 20 years holding that business are far in excess of what you generate selling it in three years and seeing someone else accrue those returns just through the slippage and in, in transaction costs. There's lots of studies out there that show what has happened to great quality businesses that have traded hands to multiple financial sponsors and the outcomes for what the investors, the original investors could have been had they held it all the way through. We've heard that from some folks in, in our investor base that have come from a more traditional fund model about businesses that they've invested in and ended up exiting and seen it excel with subsequent owners and saying, gosh, this would be a uh, pretty different outcome for our firm if we could have held it for 20 plus years. I think that same dynamic has reflected some of the history of Constellation with how it existed privately and what publicly, what some of the investors, who some of the original investors were and motivations to sell and what those stakes could have been like today versus 10 years ago, whenever they, whenever they sold. One other interesting element to riff off that, Daniel, is this like transaction cost idea. The other transaction costs, it's like a foregone learning curve scaling cost, if that makes any sense. So what I mean by that is you buy a business, you invest in a business, you don't really know it. You had to spend maybe a few years getting to know the business from afar. You do, for us, we close in four weeks from LOI to close or faster, depending on the situation, as opposed to three months or these big eight month exclusivity that people for some reason feel they need. And so you get in there and maybe after year four, you start to really understand the business and it gets very easy to be able to understand what matters, what's going wrong. You finally build trust with the management team. You understand the customer voice and it's just getting good, right? Like the rest of the time forward is a cinch to oversee because you have teams that you trust and you understand the business and the game slows down in that market. So by selling businesses quickly, private equity, growth equity, et cetera, do, you've given up all of these gains in efficiency and oversight leverage that you could otherwise have. So that's another non-economic, I guess, not easy to measure economic cost of the short-termism. Are there a few notable examples that you've studied over the years of companies that have been able to have either consistent ownership or they've taken this long-term thought or mindset to the extreme? One that comes to mind is Madison Industries, run by a really great CEO named Larry Gies, who we've had the good fortune to be able to speak to a couple of times. They have been around for quite a while and had a strategic shift some years ago towards permanent ownership. And from what we can tell, it's and from what we know, it's worked out really wonderfully 
everything there is focused on permanent ownership, decentralization, autonomy, co-equity, incentives, just like we talked about. And they are yet another example of how, particularly in the private context, it's a huge, hugely successful private company, unified shareholders and this long-term vision can work. And I think that from an outsider looking in, they're getting to this nirvana place where they are becoming the preferred home for the businesses of the sort that they look at. And that also can only be attained when you really hold on to your stuff that people can talk about how great it is to be with you for long periods of time. That's a example that comes to mind. That's a pretty good one in the operating model construct. I mean, Epic, Healthcare, EMR, each or whatever that term du jour is, an amazing business and a team of folks in the ownership group there that just put their head down, focus on executing, not caught up with trying to gain the market, go public or raise money or any of that sort of stuff. Just an unbelievable business they've been able to build just executing over years and focusing on the thing they're trying to build for the long term. I'd love to know that business um, a little better as I'm sure other people would, but as the outsider and having been involved in businesses that are competing with Epic or around that ecosystem, it's just every time you run up against them, you got to shake your head and say, gosh, what an amazing job that they've done in their space. We've alluded to long-term operations and investing throughout this episode. I'd be curious for what does a long-term operator of a business look like over 10, 20, 30 years? What sorts of decisions are they making? What are they avoiding? What are they not doing? What does that look like? The really classic example here, and I'll answer that question from a little bit of a different perspective of what are folks who think about the short-term going to do as a starting point and how we would think about things differently as a, a long-term owner. So the really classic example here is around how you treat your customers. And it's really easy in high quality, mission critical software businesses to get really aggressive with pricing with your customers because it's tough to replace. It's both from a system point of view and a workflow point of view. So you can buy a good business, do a really big price increase on really aggressive contractual terms with your customers. You effectively force them into accepting it because they can't switch in any sort of reasonable time frame, And then you combine that with some practices to underinvest in the support team or underinvest in your product development to really optimize your margins. From the investor point of view, you end up with an amazing showing some top line growth to get that big bump from the price increase. And maybe you get optimized for subsequent annual increases. Margins look great. Holy cow, what an amazing asset. Then you also leverage on that and you can really generate some great outcomes as the investor when you're going to sell the business three years from now. From the customer perspective, everyone starts to get pretty disgruntled here. So they feel abused and both from a pricing perspective and in instances where someone is underinvesting the product itself, they're taking this thing that's so critical to their business and they're making it, they're not adapting the product to allow the customers to grow. At some point, whether it's three years, five years, seven years, 10 years, those customers are going to leave. As hard as software is to take out, it's not forever and it make life painful for customers, they're, they're going to end up leaving. So if that replacement cycle is seven years and you own the business for the first three, it's great. It's someone else's problem. If you're going to be the owner of the business for 10, 20, 30, 50 forever, there's a pretty different approach there. And as a new investor coming into the business with that long horizon, 
sure, you might make some adjustments to, to pricing to reflect the value you're, you're delivering to customers where there might be a bit of a mismatch, but you're going to do it a lot more incrementally and collaboratively with customers. And that allows you to establish this trust or in most cases, continue the trust that the previous owner has built with customers that you're going to keep delivering value with folks over really long periods of time. That's what most customers in enterprise software businesses are, are really looking for. They always need like the latest and greatest, flashiest thing. They want to make sure that what you're providing them is continuing to support their business, allowing them to grow and optimize and that they're getting value for what they're, they're paying for. The other operating dynamic that this can flush out in is folks who come in and are very focused on short-term profitability, whether it's a manager or an owner worrying about hitting a profit number to satisfy the debt obligation, or it's a management team that's in the business worried about hitting their profit number to get a certain bonus payout. This can happen in terms of ability to, or willingness to invest in team. And so you've got a business been around for 10 or 15 years. It's a great business with a really experienced core of developers in there. At some point, those folks are going to leave the business. You've got to start backfilling your team to support that transition for whenever it's going to happen. Then the business might otherwise need at that point of time, but you've got to start bringing that next generation, whether it's younger folks here or, or elsewhere in the world, kind of suffer through those short-term profits and knowing that at the right time, the business is going to get reassessed. When you don't do that, you're just worried about, gosh, you need to make sure EBITs are 35% for the next three years. I'm not going to do any of that. So you do that, your team gets older and older, all of a sudden you got this cliff in three years and five years where the experienced folks all leave and you're sort of left with nothing in a very dramatic fashion. Then you've got to scramble and you end up with the team that has little experience with the product, doesn't get the benefit of working with the experienced folks to bring them up along the way. That overt focus on what next year's profit number looks like without regard for how is the business going to be better and going to evolve in seven years is a example that we've seen happen ourselves and businesses that we've been involved in or, or been around. Yeah. And, and to be clear, that can happen in a short-term ownership model or in a permanent ownership model that is short-term focused because they're too IRR focused or they're too focused on getting to that next deal, pulling the M&A crank and just get the cash flow out. Let's go set it and forget it and get on to the next one. On the positive side, I need to touch on this a little bit, Daniel, what to do if you're focused on the long-term the area that I was going to go is also people. And it's exactly what Daniel mentioned. You don't want, it's not about age per se, but if you have somebody who's, if you only have a team who's been in that market and you aren't bringing in outsider perspectives, newer folks earlier in their careers, a new set of energy, you will, I think, get stagnant and you can get, start to be in an echo chamber and start to believe that everything to be done in the world has been done. There's no more progress to be made. Growth, another reason why I'm so focused on growth is growth fixes that in so many ways in that you're growing, you have new opportunities for people. So you get to see which people are constantly stretching themselves and reaching for development. And that is a signal around who you should be weeding out over time and who you should be pouring more into. And also you just need to hire more people for growing. And so you get these new injections of thinking, energy, ambition, prior experiences into the business. And you may not be focused on that in a profit-driven, short-term context for all the reasons Daniel mentioned. The other area that I think this shakes out is if your goal is selling the business in three years, whether you're low growth or you're super high growth, you start to build the business based on what you think buyers will want to see. 
And that's the job of a growth equity or private equity investor. It's to sell the company. It's not to build the company. Selling is the, the lodestar at goal and all the other goals underneath those are micro goals or subservient to selling. And who do you sell to? Typically you sell to some other buyer, not the customers. That doesn't happen. And product decisions, pricing strategy, how the company is organized. Is it really a tight, consolidated, one big legal entity, or do you have this messy, but oftentimes more effective string of pearls that are operating in federation? All of these really important strategic long range decisions are influenced by the gravity of your exit universe. And when you don't have that on the horizon and you're focused on the business being way better in 15 years, as opposed to just extracting a cash in the first couple, we think you end up with wonderful businesses like Atlassian, who those guys weren't worried about who they're selling the business to or how to make it as attractive as possible for the public markets or selling it to some big strategic. And they were focused only on making it as wonderful of a company as possible for the end users. And I'm sure that over time they built some discipline about also how to make it as good of a company as it could be irrespective of, or in addition to making it a great user focused, you know, kind of product led. So if you're looking at these companies as an investor, trying to pick your next investment, what are some signs that you can look for in these companies that are identify with that long-term horizon? Is it the, like you mentioned, respecting customers, investing in people, pricing, are those the things you look for? Or are there a few other things also that are helpful in gauging whether this company already has some of that long-term culture in place? A big one is certainly team and what the team looks like, what's turnover been like in the team over time. And it's seeing folks that are churning through senior execs every couple of years versus having a experienced group of people growing with the business over time. That's certainly a signal that we look for. That can't be the only one though. And what you'd really like to see is an experienced group of folks that have grown with the business. Also a willingness to have brought in some younger people over time. Everyone in the business can't be a 20 year veteran because that means a little bit too much of too much towards the status quo and not a willingness to invest for the future. So that's certainly a pretty material one. From a transaction point of view, Paul mentioned this before, but willingness of folks to maintain a material equity stake in the business, especially when it's a growing business, that's an important signal that we would look forward that folks are thinking about the future of the business. And one of the really high value signals that is pretty uncommon, but when you see it, you get pretty excited about it is folks that have taken a disciplined approach to investing in something new in the product or in the business. So they're building a new module, they're going to expand into adjacency, but they've thought about it as a discrete growth opportunity. And they're thinking about that as gosh, I'm going to spend X dollars and here's what the market is. I'm going to think about that part of the business differently than my core business. That's an amazing signal to see. You don't see that very often, but when you do certainly get it, get excited about it. What college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you wanted? I'd like to answer this question from, not from a college perspective, more from a high school perspective. And for me, it would be a personal finance class. I know that's probably a, a common answer that folks may give, but this idea of giving young people grounding in 
how to manage cash flow, what investing is, just the whole world of what it means to manage your own money and your personal financial situation is just really under invested in from an education standpoint. And most of the folks that, that I know that have competency there have developed it because they are in the finance industry and all these folks who are not, it seems like black art, which it really shouldn't be. Sounds good. What strongly held belief have you changed your mind on? A strongly held belief that you can be a great investor in the private markets without ever having stepped foot in an operations context. So, you know, coming out of Citigroup, I had no operating experience at all outside of a deck cleaning business that I had in college, which doesn't really count. It's a few buddies and me. And I really never thought that that was going to hold me back from being a great private markets investor. As long as you can write well and you have a hotly followed Twitter handle, then, you know, isn't that the goal? And isn't, are those the steps to success? I'm saying obviously facetiously, but like it's this idea that you can just be the best analyst and the best prognosticator ever, and you don't have to be the man in the arena at all. Constellation for sure changed forcibly, in a sense, changed my view on this. Seeing what you can do as an investor in terms of quickly sizing up a business, knowing what's possible, increasing your confidence levels in what is possible and how fast it can be done. What are all the implications financially in terms of the return for the business was just amazing. And the only way you can get that is by stepping out of the ivory tower and getting out of your Excel models and off your banker calls if you're at a PE firm and having Deloitte do all of your DD for you and instead actually getting into a business, getting screamed at by customers, having people come to you with personal problems, seeing a screwed up support ticket, failed implementations. And these are all things that I was lucky enough to go through in Daniel as well. Literally data breach and getting customers calm off the edge after crappy implementations, but also being there for the positive side and seeing what it really means to have a happy customer, successful implementation. And we don't consider ourselves the best operators in the world, but there is a lot of learning that can be done in a short period of time in the operating world. And if you think about it, like you're taking the shrink wrap off of the academic learnings that anyone can parrot back if you hear them enough times, that's, I think that's the right framework to be, to grasping onto. So that's something that I know Daniel and I both believe fundamentally, and we've already alerted all of our head office investment folks who are all ultra high quality winners with, with unique backgrounds and lots of ambition that they will have to go step into a business. And so every investment we look at, we say, okay, now would you want to go run it? And if the CEO retires and we can't find somebody else, are you prepared to go run this business for six months to three years? We want to instill that in our culture. Yeah. And this is something that Arcadia is the best equipped at in the part of the market that we're targeting for businesses to partner with is the experience that Paul and I have. There's really not many other folks, if any, who have that breadth of experience when it comes to operating in the vertical market and combining that with this lens of long-term ownership, you've got to help create value in businesses. And we get that question occasionally from folks we're talking to, is it great, you know, I can get capital from anywhere, I can sell my business to anywhere. I want to be able to advance the business and grow it and make it better. And how are you going to be value added as, as investors? And you, you can't do that as having been a professional investor your whole life. You've got to be able to contribute to that value creation plan from a, both a strategic and tactical perspective. And that's something that we can certainly bring to businesses. And we look forward, as Paul mentioned, to getting the folks that work with us in Arcadia today, that same level of experience. Absolutely. 
What's the best business you've ever seen? Yeah, we're, we're going to be a little bit cheesy here with this answer, but it's certainly Constellation. We have the benefit of seeing it up close as a, an aggregate and just a remarkable business. The fact that it's so decentralized and there's no reason that you couldn't see a bunch of folks leave the business and without any real change to the trajectory or performance of the business, it's like an amazing construct for a business at, at that scale and success. Paul mentioned a couple of these things earlier, being able to maintain discipline around an operating philosophy, despite the business scaling remarkably over decades, this concept of understanding incentives and how it influences behavior and being very cognizant of that, not being flighty or too ad hoc with how folks are rewarded. It seems easy. It's super hard to do and not reducing any business that is able to do it better. And obviously the compounding story is the raw performance. Most folks outside of the software world and even within the software world, if you're not thinking about folks who are acquirers, have never heard of Constellation, despite this like, unbelievable success. There's really few businesses that can boast of this level of performance over this long a period of time. It's lots to admire there. And I certainly haven't seen a business as good as Constellation in my career. There's just zero dependencies throughout the business, which Daniel already talked, on, uh, talked about, but it's worth reiterating. They've done what they've done without any balance sheet fragility. So no leverage, basically no leverage, some debentures, but it's, it's nothing. And with consistency and super high capital efficiency, hard to think of many better businesses out there. And it's amazing business. We don't think that necessarily means it's the best home for every business that's a software business. I think they'd say that. And we're not the best home for every business either. But just from a academic perspective, it, there's not many other things like it. I think we'd put Danaher up there as well as one of the best. And so we're lucky to have the founders as one of our backers and somebody who we can call on and we speak with frequently for advice and did it a little bit a different way. There aren't many other up there in that level. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Paul and Daniel, so much for sharing some time today. Love hearing about what you're working on with Arcadia and your time at Constellation and looking at long-term businesses. I really loved it. So thank you so much for sharing. This has been fun. Our pleasure. And yeah, thanks for showing interest in what we're doing. And we're in this for the long run. I think we're probably all around the same age. You're probably a little bit younger than at least me, but looking forward to be able to talk five years, 10 years, 20 years about how we've been able to build our business. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Livebook Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. And if you want to learn more about The Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better.